name is Caroline, and I'm so glad that you're joining us on our Grace Journey podcast. At Grace Church, we are all about knowing God and reflecting His way. I hope this sermon will do just that by feeding your mind with the knowledge of God and engaging your heart to live a life reflecting His grace and truth. Trying something a little different today. I don't think I'm too short for the pulpit, to be honest. So when I started college, and really throughout freshman year, there were three questions everyone got asked constantly. Number one, what's your name? Number two, what's your major? Number three, where are you from? I didn't mind the first two very much. My name is Caroline. I'm thinking about declaring an English major, blah, blah, blah. But the third question, the third question got really tiring really fast. You see, it wasn't too hard for most of my classmates. There were some local kids from Birmingham, Alabama, where the school was located. There were some kids from other parts of Alabama or from other states. There were even people from other countries. They all had straightforward replies. Some kids gave a more nuanced response. They would say, well, I grew up in such and such state, but my parents went to school here years ago. Or, I grew up here, but my family is from such and such place. But none of these were a good option for me. What was I going to say? If I just said, Kenya, that would lead to a handful of questions, and then an awkward silence because people didn't really know what to do with that. If I got more specific, it didn't really get better. I was born in Kenya, but I'm an American citizen. Well, we moved back and forth between Kenya and the US, but my parents are from the US. In fact, my mom's from Alabama. Well, actually, she was born in Boston and grew up in North Carolina, but she lived in Birmingham. <laughs> but my dad's actually from Ohio. And they met in Oklahoma. And, and you get the picture. No clear geographic origin that way. I was not a fan of question number three. It's funny, the markers of identity we use, the ways we say, this is who I am. In college, it was name, major, and place of origin. In adulthood, it shifts a bit. You get things like job, family, place of worship, maybe sports team, hobby, or political affiliation. In fact, I wonder what it would be like if you could get a group of people together and get them to introduce themselves by the most defining aspect of who they are. If there were some sort of magical way to get them to say exactly what it is, picture it in your head for a moment. Maybe it would be some sort of cocktail party or barbecue and everyone would be walking around, chatting with each other, getting to know each other. You know how those parties go. But the first thing each person would say to someone would be, hi, I'm so-and-so, and I am fill-in-the-blank. Imagine with me for a second. Maybe you'd get some folks who would say things like, hi, I'm Greg, and I'm Jocelyn's husband, or I'm Judge McBride's daughter, or something they're passionate about, I am a stamp collector. 
or I'm a pianist. Maybe some people would define themselves by the brokenness in their lives. I'm a drug addict. I suffer from depression. My husband abuses me. Maybe some would talk about their dreams. I'm an aspiring artist, a future lawyer. Close your eyes for a moment. Imagine it. What would you say? I bet a lot of people at that imaginary party would talk about their hometown. Because even in our increasingly mobile world, geography and identity are tied very closely together. How much more so in biblical times? Israelites were commanded to identify themselves as descendants of Abraham, a wandering Aramean. Abraham's geographic mobility was a defining aspect of his descendants' self-understanding. And then when they settled in the Promised Land, each tribe was allotted their share of land. Where you were from in the Kingdom of Israel was an indicator of which tribe you were from, a marker of identity. At a more personal level, the land originally allotted to your ancestors was not just about tribe, it was about family. It was even about justice. Over and over in the Old Testament, we see people criticized by the prophets for changing the geographic boundaries of people's inheritance to defraud the poor out of their birthright. When Israel split into two kingdoms, your geographic home was no longer only a marker of tribe or of family, but also a marker of kingdom. Were you part of Judah, the kingdom that remained loyal to David's descendants, unless regularly to Adonai Elohim, the Lord Almighty, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Or were you part of Israel, the kingdom that broke off and created their own sanctuary and idols? Geography was inextricably linked with faith in other ways as well. Were you a Jew, one of the descendants of Abraham, the people of God who God had given this land to? Or were you an alien in the land, a foreigner that the law of Moses commanded should be treated well? Were you an invader or a conqueror from another kingdom? In our Old Testament reading, the prophet Amos has been called by God to confront Jeroboam, the king of Israel, and to declare the coming judgment on Israel. Amos is from Judah. He's outside of his geography, but he's still within the original kingdom God established. He is still within the people who claim to belong to Adonai Elohim, and he is pronouncing a message from God. The priest, Amaziah, a priest of Adonai Elohim, who should have been especially interested in any message from God, is instead offended by, Amaz by Amos's, beg pardon, Amos's declaration of coming divine judgment. Amaziah goes to the king with a story of conspiracy, a story he either made up to get rid of Amos or imagined as the only possible motive for Amos's actions. If that's the case, how far had Israel wandered from God that even the priests could not imagine a prophet prophesying for any, without any agenda other than obedience? At any rate, he comes back to kick Amos out, a 
attempting to banish him back to Judah. He says, never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is the temple of the kingdom. Do you hear what he's doing here? He's separating God from both sanctuary and kingdom, whether or not he actually realizes it. According to Amaziah's statement, the sanctuary is there for the king, and the temple is there for the kingdom. Which kingdom is this? To which land do the priest and the king belong? Does the priest serve in the temple of the Lord or in the temple of the human king? Does the king rule over the people of God or just a human kingdom that only gives lip service to the king of kings? To which kingdom do they belong? In our gospel reading, Jesus also highlights geography, identity, and kingdom. In the midst of teaching, he is questioned about the command to love your neighbor. One of his listeners asks for clarification. Who is your neighbor? Neighbor is typically understood geographically. Your neighbor is whoever lives within a certain distance from you. But for Jews who have been raised to understand that they, as God's chosen people and heirs of the kingdom of Israel, were set apart, were superior, that would probably have seemed hard to believe. It would probably have seemed more likely to them that neighbor meant someone like you. Surely Roman invaders couldn't count as neighbors. And did women really qualify? We have Jewish devotional texts that taught Jewish men to thank God that they were not born a woman. But most importantly of all, surely only Jews would be neighbors. After all, they were co-inheritors of the covenant, fellow children of the wandering Aramean. They were part of the people of God. They belonged to the kingdom that God would once again raise up under the rule of a descendant of David, right? As any of you know, who have heard the story of the Good Samaritan before, which I suspect is most of us, but if you've read it before, you know that Jesus broadens the meaning of neighbor, and he takes it far beyond the bounds of geography and all such identity markers. Your neighbor is the person you run across. Your neighbor is the person in need. Your neighbor is the, whoever God brings into your life. And once again, this begs the question, to which kingdom do you belong? Only the kingdom of God here is not bound by geography. It is not the geopolitical kingdom of God's chosen people, the Israelites, under the rulership of fickle, idolatrous humans. No, the two kingdoms here are the kingdoms of this world, with all their obsession with the temporal identifiers of geography, citizenship, ethnicity, language, and the kingdom of God, the kingdom ruled by the risen Christ and peopled with the adopted children of God from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, and every land, the kingdom in which all people are treated as neighbors, and all neighbors are loved out of the superabundant overflow of the Father's love in Christ Jesus. To which kingdom do you belong? 
If you were back at that imaginary party and you were introducing yourself, what would your identifier be? Would it be that you were a Christian? Or would the single most determining factor of who you are be anything other than your relationship with God? To which kingdom do you belong? The kingdom where citizenship is free to you at the incalculable cost of the blood of the king himself. The kingdom that, like the prophet Amos, speaks devastating truth in love and in the desperate hope that it will reach a world bent on self-destruction. Or the kingdom that banishes the true prophets in favor of false teachers who speak words our itching ears long to hear. The kingdom that reaches out to the stranger and calls him a neighbor and heals him with no hope of repayment. Or the kingdom that asks, who really is my neighbor? Who am I and am I not morally obligated to love? I want you to do something. When you go home today, I want you to take some scraps of paper and a pen. And I want you to write down all your identity markers. If I were writing mine, I would write things like woman, missionary kid, marrying Robert, sister, priest, and so on. And then I want you to arrange those scraps roughly in order of how much they influence you. Now, I know there's no clear hierarchy for a lot of things, but roughly in order. Some can be in clusters if you want. And then I want you to take another piece of paper, and I want you to write Christian, and then put it at the top of the list. What, if anything, would change in your day-to-day -day life if Christian were always at the top? If Christian was not just the most influential out of a list, but the foundation of the whole list? What would change? Would anything else be reordered? Would anything else be removed or added? If, when you're honest with yourself, you realize a lot would change, then this is your opportunity for repentance. Thanks be to God for his grace. He saves us even when we don't put him first. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But he doesn't want us to live like that. Repent. Ask for his help to change. Ask him to change your heart and your mind so that who you are in him is the number one most influential aspect of your identity, the foundation and structure of everything else. Before you are a citizen of the United States, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. Before you are a member of the tribe of men or women, you are a member of the body of Christ. Before you're a lawyer or a dentist or a retiree, you're a follower of Jesus. Before you're young or old, I prefer not to comment, you're a child of God. Your identity is in Christ. You belong to the kingdom of God. My fiance, Robert, has had the really neat opportunity to meet some people who risked their lives to convert from Islam to Christianity. Many of them still live in fear of what might happen to them because of this. 
And Robert told me that one time, one of these converts asked him, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? It's not that our works make us a part of the kingdom of God. There is no way we could earn that. It is that when our primary identity is as a part of the kingdom of God, it changes us. It changes our hearts and minds and souls. And as Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. When our hearts and minds and souls are transformed by the love of God, when our primary and foundational identity is as a citizen of the kingdom of God, then we will no longer ask, do I really have to love this person? And instead ask, who else can I love? Amen. Thanks again for listening. To find out more about what's going on here at Grace Church, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, our website, graceocala.org, or of course, on our campus here in sunny Ocala, Florida. Go in peace.